Good morning. Welcome, church. We are beginning week six, right? So we're actually in day 36, the first day of week six, as we read through uh, the book of Genesis together. I hope you guys um, are enjoying it, but even more importantly than enjoying it, I hope you are growing in your love and your affections for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Over this last several weeks, we've seen how uh, Genesis, say that, Genesis and Jesus, we've seen how Genesis points to the hope that Jesus provides, the salvation that Jesus offers, the peace that Jesus brings, and that's all in the first book of the Bible, the first book of the Old Testament in Genesis. And it just helps us make sense of some of the scripture, it helps us make sense of something that Jesus said in Luke that we began this whole series with, and Jesus said this, and he said to them on the road to Emmaus, he said, oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory, and beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Right? All of scripture points to Jesus. Fools miss the fact that all scripture concerns, or concerns Jesus. And when we look at scripture, we have to realize it's not about us. Right? Too often we, we look at it and we put ourselves at the center of every story. But the truth is, is Jesus is at the center of every story. The book is about Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about Kendrick. It's about Jesus. And these last several weeks, if we have walked through Genesis, it has been a pretty smooth ride. It has gone from event to event, from person to person. We started off with creation, and we moved to the flood. Then we started talking about people. We talked about Abraham. We talked about Isaac. We talked about Jacob. And they're they're known as the, the patriarchs, and we've looked at them, and we've kind of heard their stories. But in our reading last week, something happened. We saw that Jacob's name was changed to Israel, right? That should have made your ears stick up just a little bit. That's kind of significant, right? We know that Israel is known as God's people, We know that now Jacob was going to be the father of these 12 sons that would become the 12 tribes that would become the people of God. And naturally, when we talk about God's chosen people, we're thinking, oh, this is going to be the perfect family. Right? Everything is going to be awesome. Right? God is going to use these people to bless others. And not only is he going to do that for their time period, but God promises that Jesus is going to come from one of the lines of those sons. So as we hear this, we start to anticipate and think, this is going to be the family, right? This is going to be the best family that we see. This is going to be the perfect family. This is going to be the family that makes the Cleavers look like the Bundys, right? And some of you have no idea what I'm talking about when I say Cleavers, and others of you have no idea what I talk about when I say Bundys. Look it up. We are a multi-generational church. Right? But this was going to be the family that was going to put all the great families to shame. Well, not exactly. Right? We know that as we go through Scripture, this family is not that family. This family is dysfunctional at best. Right? You think your family is messed up. 
I promise you, your family doesn't hold a light to this family that we're about to read about. Right? Your family probably looks like the cleavers compared to this family that we are going to read about. A, a famous or a well-known Bible study author wrote this about the, the real first family. She wrote this. This is a polygamous family marked by manipulation, incest, prostitution, jealousy, murder, rape, sibling rivalry, idolatry, deceit, and estrangement. That's a messed up family, right? That's all in one family. But as we've read scripture and we've read the end and we've read this book, we know that not only does God use them to bless others during their time, but we know that God sends his son Jesus through this family line and blesses everyone for all time. So if you think that you are limited in your ministry, if you think that you are limited in your witness to Jesus Christ because your family is so jacked up, Scripture says you're wrong. Right? That is not a reason for you not to do ministry. God can still use you. And so this morning, I just want to take a few minutes to lay the groundwork for the rest of our time in Genesis and show how God can, right, how God can and will use you despite the dysfunction in your family. We are all part of a dysfunctional family to some degree. Right? If you don't think you are, that means that you're either a liar, it means that you're deceived, or you might be the reason why the rest of your family knows you're dysfunctional. So tomorrow in our readings, we're going to be introduced to this family, specifically the sons of Jacob. So I want to get a head start. It's always good to start Monday off with a little head start. So go ahead and open your Bibles. Turn to chapter 37. And this chapter begins with the story of Joseph. Right? This is Jacob's favorite son. And as we go through, we will see that for the remainder of the book of Genesis, Jacob is the focus of every chapter except for one. All right, for the next 13 chapters, Jacob... Uh, Joseph will be the focus of every chapter except for one. That one I'm going to read on Tuesday because nobody else wanted to read it because it's pretty bad. So on Tuesday you'll see what I'm talking about. The remainder of the the whole book of Genesis tells of this dramatic account of Joseph's life. The, The favorite son of his father. The betrayal at the hands of his brothers. His time as a slave covers his time as a prisoner of Egypt, and then it covers his rise to power in Egypt, and then it ends with the reconciliation and the reunion with his family. The story of Joseph is fascinating. One author said this about the entire story. He said this about Joseph. He was loved and he was hated. He was favored and he was abused. He was tempted and he was trusted He was exalted and he was abased, yet at no point in the 110-year life of Joseph did he ever seem to get his eyes off God or ceased to trust him. Adversity did not harden his character. Prosperity did not ruin him. He was the same in private as in public. He was truly a great man. And Joseph's story is so remarkably divided between his humiliation and his exaltation that we cannot avoid seeing Christ in it. Because we know that Jesus is one who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. 
And the scripture says this, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right, and as we look at the story of Joseph, we see that he is such this remarkable type of Jesus. He points us to Jesus that we're actually going to spend this week and next week looking at Joseph. So let's go ahead and let's get started. Let's look, look at this family. We're going to begin in Genesis chapter 37. And I'm just going to read the first four verses. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 37. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flocks with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah and his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. And this is how we begin the story of Joseph. One of the, the most uh, remarkable life stories in the Bible, but it's actually one of the most remarkable stories in all of literature. The story of Joseph. Right, the story of Joseph begins in Canaan, and this is, which is, of course, this is the promised land that we've read about for so long. And ever since that promise was made to Abraham, the utterance of the words of the promise of land and the promise of, of generations and people, we have seen event after event, obstacle after obstacle that starts to interfere with that promise. We see these dangerous foreign kings try to wipe them out. We see wicked cities. We see barren women. We see famines in the area. And that's just naming a few of the things of the promised land. However, as we look at this part of the narrative, just this beginning part of the narrative, it looks a lot more like family drama rather than a political issue. The background of the story begins with Joseph's dad, Jacob. Jacob's great love for his mom, Rachel. And it's a story you can read about in chapters 29 and 30 if you didn't read about him this week. But let me just give you a quick summary. Jacob, Joseph's father, he loved Rachel. But instead he married his, her sister Leah as a result of their dad's deception. Jacob continued to love Rachel more than Leah. And he eventually got to marry Rachel. This caused Leah a good deal of pain. And Leah's ability to bear children caused a great deal of pain to the barren Rachel. So Rachel had her handmaid get pregnant by her husband Jacob, which led to Leah to offer her handmaid Zilpah to her husband Jacob. Jacob ended up fathering children by four women, 12 sons and a daughter. And we don't know whether Jacob loved Bilhah and Zilpah, the handmaids, more than he loved Leah, but we do know that Jacob loved Rachel more. So here is the summary. Jacob married two of his cousins and took two more concubines. Uh, they're legal mistresses of the day. And he ended up with four baby mamas, 12 sons, and one daughter. 
That is a disaster of a foundation for a family. And as you can imagine, this was a messy situation. There was constant fighting. There was constant conflict. There was constant jealousy among the mothers and the children. There is always tensions when we see this. And we always see that as women are vying for attention of the man, we see that that frustration is transferred to the children. And so now we just have a whole bunch of upset people in this family. And in the passage we read this morning, it only mentions the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, the, the handmaidens, that they're now concubine, concubines. But later we see that at least Reuben and Judah, that were both sons of Leah, the first wife, were involved in these negative actions and these negative attitudes towards Joseph. So now we see Jacob, now Israel, his name was changed, was the father over this troubled, troubled family. He was the patriarch of this mess with sons from four different mothers that are all living and working together. And as we'll see in the following chapters this week, as you are reading on your own throughout the week, this was not the perfect family. Right? We see these family dynamics were more like family dynamite. And everything is going to explode right in front of our face. And the fuse is lit by Jacob showing his favoritism towards Joseph. We know that Joseph is the oldest son of his most beloved wife, Rachel. At this point in the story, Rachel is no longer alive. She died giving birth to Benjamin. And at this this point in the story, at this junction in the story, uh, we believe that Benjamin was about four years old. And so he is at home. He is not out in the fields with all of his brothers hating on Joseph. And Jacob, though, you would think he would know better. You think he'd be wise to this potential for disaster that is created by his favoritism of one of his children. His own father favored his twin brother Esau, and his mother loved him, and the favoritism of the parents contributed to this great deal of tension and feud and actually fleeing and quarrels in the family. Jacob himself ended up tricking his father, and then he stole from his twin brother, which led him to run away, which led him to flee for his life. He lived in another land for many years. Many think he never had the opportunity to see his mom again. And he was living in fear and anguish. anguish, And he was isolated simply because of the favoritism of parents. Jacob's own favoritism created problems. And here, he was continuing this crazy cycle himself. It's amazing how often that we repeat the dysfunction in our own families. We ourselves say, I will never do that, or we see the damage, but we continue to create dysfunction in our families. Abuse, addictions, poor money management, or or worse, this practice of this tepid faith. Right? We practice this thing of religion with no actually relationship with Jesus. And our family continues this fake, tepid, religion instead of understanding what a relationship with Jesus looks like. But here's the problem, church. We have the power to change. Right? We can change our families because we know Jesus. Right? It is Jesus that changes our hearts and gives us life. He gives us a new life so we're not stuck in the sins of our past. We're not even stuck in our own sins or the sins of our fathers. 
but we start a new life that is built on the grace of Jesus. Through Jesus, you can be the change that changes your family's crazy cycle. Unfortunately, we don't always seek or trust Jesus to be that change in our lives. Even as I studied this passage and I shook my head at Jacob's poor, poor parenting. I often hear my own kids fight over who's dad's favorite, who's dad's favorite. And I always say, I don't have a favorite. Sailor, plug your ears. Right? Like, I don't have a favorite. And I didn't think I did. But then somebody asked Max. Hey, Max. And Max is nine years old. Incredible wisdom. Hey, Max. Who's your dad's, or does your dad have a favorite child? And Max looked right at him and said, yes, he does. And my heart dropped because I'm like, I'm the worst parent ever. And then, of course, the the follow-up question was, was, okay, Max, which child is your dad's favorite? And Max responded, it depends because it changes all the time based on how we act. And I thought about it for a minute. And I thought, Max is right. That's how it works. Right? Don't, don't judge me. Right? Don't judge. There's so many people in here that are appalled that I would say such a thing. But everybody in here with multiple kids is saying, oh yeah, that's true. That's, not, that's how it works. And Max spoke wisdom in that family. So I guess I show rotational favoritism. I guess that's okay. My kids are turning out okay so far. But Jacob didn't show rotational favoritism. Jacob just straight out showed favoritism of Joseph. And it was this obvious source of a whole bunch of conflict back and forth in the family. And the brothers naturally hated him. Right? Because the father favored him so, so much. Right? They really hated him. We know that in scripture, if it repeats itself, that is something that is important. And I think in verses 4, 5, and 8, three verses over three times in four verses, it says his brothers hated him. Right? They hated him. In verse 4, it says they couldn't even speak peaceably, peacefully to him. Like, they couldn't even think of a nice thing to say to him ever. Like, ever. And as crazy as I think our family is, And as much as our kids um, talk loudly to each other, right, as long as they say kind of nice things to each other, there are some of these great moments when they say nice things to one another. Just a few weeks ago, my big high school brother told his sister that if she needed to, she could sit with him at lunch if she didn't have somebody to sit with, as long as she didn't embarrass him. Right, he, he put on some conditions, but I'll take that. Right, that is a good sign. A couple of nights ago, Melissa and I, we were sitting down, we were watching TV, and the kids were supposed to be in bed, and the house was supposed to be quiet, and we hear two of our kids talking together when they're supposed to be in bed, but they're laughing, and they're giggling, and we just pause the TV and just listen to it. Because there's something nice about family and children just laughing and giggling. And it was wonderful. Now we look at this family with these 12 sons, and there's none of that. Right? There is none of that in this family. Right? This, is the, this is the family that we look to to find encouragement when we think our family is dysfunctional. 
Right? We can look to them and say, <laughs> at least we're not them. Right? At least we're not those guys. So that is this family that we are looking at as we move forward. But before I, before I transition, I want to look at the relationship between Joseph and his father. We know that his brothers hated him, and we know that he is his father's favorite. Those are two things that we know, and these two things often lead us to make an assumption about what the bad report was that he brought to his father. Right? We, we just assume that he was some spoiled kid or that he was snitching on or that he was acting as like the teacher's pet towards his dad and he was just jiving his brothers. But we don't know what that report was. Right? Is there another explanation? Like if we keep in mind that, Jesus, that Joseph is a picture of Jesus, I think it's more likely that he simply prioritized his relationship with his father over others. That he had a responsibility to honor his father and to respect his father. We know nothing about the specifics of that port. We don't know if Joseph accused his brothers of poor shepherding practices or of wasting money, inappropriate relationships with, with females in the neighboring tribes. We don't know if he's reporting dangerous acts that his brothers were doing. Right, whether it was interfering with the life of the sheep or maybe putting their own lives at risk. If Joseph had observed these genuine malfeasance or this harmful behavior on the part of his brothers, he is obligated to tell his dad about these things. He is obligated to report these things to his father. And as parents, we all get frustrated over tattletales. People that just blah, 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 blah. And we expect our kids to tell us only if the other kids are doing something that's like really harmful or improper or dangerous. Right, parents? That's a real clear line between what is tattletaling and what is helpful, right? No, it's not. We have no idea. It depends what kind of mood we're in at the time, right? If that's tattletaling or not. I mean, you can ask Isaac because he gets in trouble for this all the time, right? He'll come to me and he'll start talking. And I say, Isaac, stop it. I don't want to hear tattletaling. I don't care. Go away. And then a few minutes later, Melissa will catch one of them doing it and say, Isaac, why didn't you tell me? And Isaac just knows he can't win, right? He's going to get in trouble regardless. He does his best to pick between what's tattletaling and what's not. It's a tough line sometimes, right, Isaac? <laughs> right, but we see this when we go back to Scripture. Not my family. Let's get out of my family. It's a mess, right? <laughs> Joseph was his father's favorite and did receive privileged treatment, as we've seen by the coat that his father gave him. But we have no reason to believe that Joseph was some spoiled, whiny uh, little kid. He didn't have any chores, or he wasn't an active part of the family business. He was this dad's little snitch that run around. There is no reason to believe that at all. And actually, as we look in Scripture, and by all accounts, we see that Joseph was displaying signs of maturity and signs of responsibility. He loved his father, and while he cared for his brother, his heart was set on the will of his father. Joseph was set about the business of his father. Joseph was focused on pleasing his father. Joseph was trying to honor his father. Does that sound like anybody that we know in the New Testament? I think Joseph was about his father's business, just like Jesus was about his father's business. 
Jesus asked his earthly parents, right? Jesus is gone. Parents can't find him. They're searching all over the place like, where did Jesus go? And Jesus looks at his parents and says, why were you looking for me? Right? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And that father's house in several translations is translated, didn't you know I was about my father's business? Didn't you know I was doing the things that my father sent me to do? Of course I'm teaching in the temple. I came to testify to the truth, to tell people about my father, to teach. That is my priority, to be about my father's business. And we all see that uh, Joseph strove to do what pleased his father. Does that sound like Jesus? Remember when Jesus was speaking of his father, he says, and I do the things that are pleasing to him. And he's the one that sent me. I do the things that please him. That is Jesus' focus. And finally, we see that Jesus says a few verses later in, in John chapter 8, he simply says that his desire is to honor his father. That was Jesus' desire, to honor my father. And so when we see these examples, we see Joseph as a type, as a predictive resemblance of the person and the work of Jesus that is to come. He is representing that relationship between father and son that Jesus had with the father. His desire to honor his father was the driving factor in his daily work, in his life. It wasn't what his brothers thought about him. It wasn't what anybody else did. His heart was set on the business of his father, on pleasing and honoring him in all that he did. And we know from scripture that Jesus' brothers envied him and they hated him for this strong connection that he had with his father. And the authority that was given to Joseph by his father. And the favor that he enjoyed from his father. We see that even as Jesus' brothers envied him and hated him for similar reasons. Right? If we remember Jesus, we remember that Jesus did not come from the perfect family. First, the family that we have been talking about, this disaster of a family, that's Jesus' family. That's where Jesus came from. But we don't have to go back 1,800 years to find dysfunction in Jesus' family. We don't have to go back that far at all. Jesus had his own dysfunction in his immediate family. Unexpectedly and under strange circumstances, his mother became pregnant with him. Well before the wedding date. His mom and dad, they, they quickly got married far ahead of the announced wedding date. When Jesus was just a child, they, they became refugees and they had to flee for their lives. It was a disaster. They ended up coming back home where everyone knew about this strange pregnancy and this um, shotgun or maybe at, at that time a slingshot wedding that happened between his parents. His own brothers didn't believe him. They thought he was crazy. They made fun of him. His mom seemed a, a little pushy. Right? Read John 2. She doesn't take no for an answer. She, she thinks she can tell God what to do. Right? She's got some pushy parts to her. We see that Jesus on the cross puts his mom in the hands of the disciples, not her own sons or his half-brothers. Right? He said, no, no, no. I'm going to give you to the disciples. His own disciples sold him, denied him, abandoned him, doubted him, even as he stood before them after his resurrection. There's some major 
dysfunction, some major problems just in that immediate family. I can just tell you right now, being one of five sons to my dad, one of the verses to me that proves that Jesus was the Messiah is James 1.1. And this is where James, Jesus' half-brother, the one that was calling him crazy just a few years earlier, writes this. James, speaking of himself, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, it would take a miracle for me to admit to serving one of my brothers. Right? Let me, let me tell you, there is no way, no way, even if I saw my brothers doing some of the things that Jesus did, that I would say, oh, they're the Christ. That ain't happening. Right? And as I look at James, he calls himself a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's many reasons, but one of them is James. And man, I believe. <laughs> I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Savior. So when we look at this family, right, the question is, just, so what? What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with my life? What does this have to do with my relationship with God? Right, and it's through Joseph, this young man that God chose to save Jacob and his family, and thereby to set the stage for the founding of the nation of Israel. And in this story that we are going to look at, in this story that we're going to read the next several weeks, the next two weeks, there's both a challenge and an encouragement for every single person. As we look at this story, I pray that you are challenged to pursue God's glory above your own reputation. But I, I pray that as you look at Joseph's life, you will accept the challenge and you will pursue God at all costs no matter what. Joseph, like Jesus, was fiercely loyal and devoted to his father, and he honored him first, even at the expense of his own reputation with his brothers. And then as we continue this story, we'll see that he jeopardized his relationship in several other ways, simply to pursue his heavenly father. I think both Joseph, as, as well as Jesus' be behavior, both speak to the type of love that, that, that they had for their respective fathers. And it challenges us to love our Heavenly Father in this way. That we'd have this love that was careless about what others thought. That we would be Jesus freaks and not care about what the rest of the world thought. That we would be challenged to give it all up for the sake of pursuing Jesus. That we would care more about honoring our Father than we would about protecting our reputation. And that's a challenge to myself, and I, I think that I, I think that all of us, if we do that, we will find an intriguing dynamic, right, that will result in our families, result in our relationships within our families, will result in relationships in the workplace, will result with relationships in our community if we pursue God at all costs. I think you and I often try to save our lives, that we try to save our social lives, we often choose to give more weight, usually we give a lot more weight to what our friends and maybe in particular our family or our co-workers think about us and not nearly enough consideration to what God the Father thinks. We live our lives afraid of dying socially, not eternally. We live our lives afraid of dying, of embarrassment, of maybe being excluded from our social circles because they give us life. That's a lie. Jesus himself asks this, how can you believe 
when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Just let that sink in for a minute. Jesus says, hey, when you're chasing all this other stuff and you're not chasing God, how do you even say you believe? See, I believe that the Father wants us to live like Joseph and Jesus lived. That we need to live for God the Father without regard of the opinions of our friends or our brothers or our sisters or even others. That we would just be so focused about the business of our, our Father in heaven, about pleasing Him and honoring Him. And that is the challenge in this story to each of us. To pursue God's glory at the cost of everything. That that would be our number one focus in life. That that would be our calling in life. That that's what we would do. We wouldn't weigh about how is this going to affect if I pursue God or if I give him glory. We would just simply pursue him at all costs. That's the challenge. But as we read through the story, I want you to tell you that there's also this great encouragement that is found in the story of Joseph. Right, God, the, the great, great parent whose grace is poured upon this family who is unworthy of such a gift. But that's what grace is. Right, all the grace in our life, we are unworthy of it. But it is offered to each of us, regardless of what we've done in the past. It's offered to each of us, regardless of how dysfunctional our family is. God's grace is poured out on us. And this story must have given the Israelites a whole bunch of comfort. Because as we continue to read through the Old Testaments, we see that they, they have some really strange kings with some really dysfunctional families that are trying to lead them. Right, as the Israelites were being led by families where brothers were killing brothers, they could look back to the sons of Jacob and say, hey, it's not over, we still have hope. Right, when the king's own son raped the sister, right, the king's daughter, the people could say, God is faithful. You remember the sons of Jacob? When the king's families hoard themselves after other gods, Israelites, they could find joy knowing that what they mean for evil, God meant for good. See, Jacob's family, Jesus' ancestors, were one messed up family. But still, it brought forth Joseph and furthered God's great plan for all of the ages. Because it was Joseph that protected him. Right? It was through Judah that Jesus came. And when it seemed that God's face was nowhere to be seen, that his voice was nowhere to be heard, when it seemed that God was just absent among this dysfunctional family, we know that God was actively working to redeem his people through them. What that family meant for evil, Joseph tells us, Scripture tells us, what that family meant for evil, God meant for good. And God's word to everyone is this, your messed up family, past family, present family, your messed up future family, does not mean that God has forsaken you does not mean that God has put this cloud over you that, you that will never pass. It has just held you in this dark spot forever. Right? This tells us that God works in and through difficult and messed up families. 
so we should be encouraged that we can trust that God's silence in our family is not the same as God's absence. Just because we don't see him or hear him, maybe because we don't think he's there, that doesn't mean he's not. God is working and we need to trust that God is not absent from our family. We need to trust that just as God chose this family to be the bearers of God's blessing, not only for this family, but for your family and for the entire world forever. God chose that family and we need to, we need to trust that. And so we should be encouraged. Right? We should be encouraged that no matter how we relate to the dysfunctional families, we go through this story, there's probably more similarities than we would like to agree with this messed up family. But the truth is, it's not about you. Right? The story isn't about you. And to be honest with you, it's not even a, a, about that family. It's not even about Jacob and his kids. It is about God. It is about God's glory. It is about God's power. It is about God's grace. That is the center of this story. That there is no family that is too messed up that God can't fix it. That there's no heart that God can't heal. That there's no life that God can't restore. Right? That is the focus of this story. It's God. Right? The truth is, before we knew God, we knew our family. Right? We knew what our family was. And could it also be that to know our family and all of its wounds, and all of its defunctions, and all of its faults, is that also the same way that God helps us understand his grace? Is that how God leads us to his grace? If your family dysfunction has been keeping you away from Jesus, just know he's not afraid of your dynamics. Right? His family is worse than yours. Right? He is not bothered by that. He is reaching out to you. And he actually wants to show you that his grace is something that you you don't even understand that his grace is greater than any of your dysfunction that he has more grace to give you than you ever thought was possible and if you've just been sitting down and said no no no, you don't know my family you don't know jesus's family right you don't need jesus's power you don't know jesus's grace you don't need jesus's glory He's willing to just show you that grace. And if you don't know him, if you've been to let your family hold you back, I want to encourage you to come talk to me. I would love to share and tell you about the grace of Jesus that he is ready to pour out on you. And for the rest of you, right? A dysfunctional family is no excuse to be unfaithful to our Heavenly Father. Right? Your dysfunctional family may be just the thing that leads you to his grace and demonstrates his glory to your community. Right? That may be the, the simple thing. Your family and who you are and your dysfunction. Right? All the things that mess you up. And God's got a hold of your life and he has changed you. And you have a community that is staring at you. And Jesus is dying. Right? Jesus died to show his grace through you. Dear Heavenly Father, we just, we just thank you for this story, right? And Lord, we just pray that we would be, uh, that we would allow it to grab our hearts, right? That we would tell Satan to shut up as we read through this. We start making excuses on why it doesn't work for us or why you won't love us. 
Lord, we just pray that as we read this story, you would just grab our hearts, that you would tear them open and that you would fill them with your grace. Lord, we pray that if we've been hesitant or hiding from you, that we would run to you. Lord, we pray that as we walk into our communities, that people would see how God changes lives. Lord, we pray that we would be able to manifest your love and your mercy and your grace to all of those that we come into contact with our families, our friends, our coworkers. Lord, we pray that we would be change agents used by you, not just for our families, but for our communities. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your son's holy name of Jesus that we ask all of these things and all of God's people said, Amen.